foes, they're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before, been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. Go pink for freedom, go pink for peace. That was Code Pink by Emma's Revolution. I'm Marcy Winograd of Code Pink Anti-War Radio. Welcome to our Code Pink radio show, presented by WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C., KPFT 90.1 FM in Houston, KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, and other community radio stations like Western Mass Community Broadcasting, WMOB LP 107.9 FM, and KCSB 91.9 FM in Santa Barbara. We are also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Check out our website at codepink.org. That's where you'll find all the latest on our campaigns and our radio episodes. On the first half of our show today, We'll talk about International Women's Day and feature Code Pink co-founder Medea Benjamin. On the second half of Code Pink Radio, we'll check in with European anti-war activists in Italy and Germany who are mobilizing tens of thousands of people to hit the streets to demand a ceasefire in Ukraine. We'll also hear from author Vijay Prashad on the emerging multipolar world. Recently, Code Pink celebrated International Women's Day Forming a human peace sign, each woman holding a pink umbrella, outlining the peace sign on the floor of the Capitol. Elsewhere on the Hill, Code Pink led a team of activists to visit the offices of members of the Congressional Progressive Caucus to urge them to call for a ceasefire, peace negotiations, to end this war in Ukraine. You may recall that 30 members of that caucus signed a letter last year telling President Biden to pursue diplomacy to end the war, only to have most of the signatories retract their letter within 24 hours, presumably after someone on the Hill scolded them. To date, not one House Democrat, only Republicans, have introduced legislation to stop the flow of arms and military dollars, $50 billion and counting in military money to Ukraine, Meanwhile, a myriad of countries have stepped up to volunteer to mediate a peace agreement. China, Brazil, India, Saudi Arabia, strange bedfellows. But still no word on peace talks from the White House. Also on International Women's Day, Code Pink launched a petition, Women Don't Let Women Drive War. Biden, fire Victoria Nuland. Who is Victoria Nuland? She's number three in the Biden State Department. She is now promising the United States will fund Ukrainian attacks on Crimea. That's a Russian naval base that Russia annexed in 2014 following the U.S. Baku in Ukraine. Actually, it was part of Russia for nearly 200 years. Newland's goading of Ukraine to attack Crimea is a prescription for a much wider war 
involving Romania and Poland, maybe even World War III. With more on the U.S.-Russia proxy war in Ukraine, we turn to Code Pink co-founder Medea Benjamin, who spoke on a webinar sponsored by Code Pink and Humanity Rising. Here's Jody Evans, also co-founder of Code Pink, introducing Medea. Um, all right, so um, next, um, I'm so excited to introduce you to my amazing, amazing partner, Medea Benjamin. She's the other co-founder of Code Pink, and she's also co-founded so many other organizations that are for peace and justice, Global Exchange, the human rights group. I don't know if many of us traveled the world to war zones and places where the U.S. had their boot heavy to come back and be able to tell stories of what we saw. Uh, she's co-founder with Marcy of the Peace in Ukraine Coalition, uh, Unfreeze Afghanistan, which advocates for returning the seven billion of Afghan funds frozen in U.S. banks, and Asare, the Alliance for Cuba Engagement and Respect, and the Nobel Peace Prize for Cuban Doctors Campaign. Medea has been an advocate for social justice for 50 years, and she was also nominated for a Peace Prize along with a thousand other women globally who work for peace. She's written 10 books, and her last book is on Ukraine, and she's just been on a 50-city book tour. Um, as we, as we say, it's all about educating, inspiring, and activating, and Medea is the rock star of that. She's probably been arrested a hundred times, disrupting Congress and those warmongers, um, and is tireless. Last week, I saw her leading a lobby day in Congress, and it's where her joy is, is bringing truth to power. So please, Medea, take it away. Thank you so much, and what a great series this has been. And of course, it's a great pleasure to be with Jim and with Jody and Marcy, uh, who has been doing such incredible work on this. Um, I want to uh, update us on where things stand just in these last few days as you've been having these series. And one new development is that for the first time since this war began, there was actually an in-person meeting be between our Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, and his counterpart, uh, Lavrov, in Russia. Uh, it's quite remarkable that is, this is the first time they've met in a year. It's also quite remarkable that that meeting came on the sidelines of the G20 meeting in India, but it was only a 10 minute meeting. I mean, imagine that, what could you possibly do in 10 minutes? And what you could do is basically tell each other what your positions are and that's it. And it seems like that has uh, was the crux of it. Uh, when Blinken came before the press, uh, he basically said that he lectured Lavrov to tell him that he must end the war, that we're gonna stick with Ukraine for as long as it takes, uh, that, Russia should go back into the New START Treaty, which it should, of course, uh, it didn't remove itself. Uh, it just uh, suspended the, uh, the mutual inspections. Um, but when the US lectures the Russians about treaties, um, I'm sure Lavrov brought up the US pulling out of the ABM Treaty, the INF Treaty uh, and other treaties uh, that had been negotiated so carefully over so many years. Uh, 
Uh, the other thing that Blinken said he told Lavrov is to release a prisoner, an American that the Russians are holding, uh, poor, uh, Paul Whelan, who was a former Marine who's been accused of spying. Um, and uh, I don't know what the Russian uh, Russians told Blinken, but it doesn't seem like 10 minutes uh, is really um, the beginning of negotiations. The only other talk they had was by phone, and that was back in July. And the uh, the reason for that talk was to push the Russians to release Paul Wieland and Brittany Griner. Uh, we know that Brittany Griner was released. Um, my point here is to say that uh, the U.S. is now making motions to try to show the world that it wants negotiations, but in reality is doing just the opposite uh, by the endless flow of weapons, by not pushing uh, Ukraine towards the negotiating table. Uh, I do think it's important to recognize that there have been talks along this last year, not only the ones that the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, uh, um, hijacked, which I know you've talked about in other sessions, but successful talks between the Ukrainians and the Russians that have guaranteed the export of uh, tens of millions of tons of grain out of the country, uh, talks about getting the International Atomic Energy Association into the Zaporizhia nuclear plant when it looked like that was about to explode after accusations of shelling from both sides, and many successful negotiations for prisoner swaps. While the U.S. public only knows about Brittany, Brittany Griner, and that was between the U.S. and Russia, between Ukraine and Russia, there have been constant prisoner swaps, uh, monthly prisoner swaps. And that takes a lot of negotiations, a lot of trust building. There has also been an exchange of wounded soldiers and exchange of bodies of fallen soldiers. Uh, that is to say that uh, talks are possible. What there has to be is the momentum globally for talks about how to end this war. And another country has weighed in recently on that front, and that is China that put forth its peace plan, which I would really characterize not as a peace plan because it didn't go into issues about what to do about the Donbass and Crimea, uh, but it was a set of principles that talked about protecting civilians, exchange of prisoners, uh, keeping the grain deal going. Uh, it talked about uh, building up towards a ceasefire and negotiations and a lifting of sanctions. Um, that was a serious proposal that the Chinese made. Uh, it was received by both Russia and Ukraine uh, in a positive way because they both want to have good relations with the Chinese. Uh, it was received very positively from Russian allies in Kazakhstan and Belarus. Uh, and it was immediately dismissed by the U.S. and NATO in a very cavalier fashion of saying that uh, China could not possibly add anything that would be positive towards trying to reach negotiations. And instead, uh, the U.S. and NATO have been threatening China with sanctions 
if China sends weapons to Russia. Uh, I don't want to see uh, more weapons poured into Ukraine on any side, but we must admit that it is quite ironic for the US and NATO to be telling China that it can't send weapons into the region uh, while the US is supplying tens of billions of dollars of weapons. Uh, in any case, I think it would have been a positive move for the US to actually really respond to China's set of principles, uh, going through each one of them one by one, what they agreed with, what they didn't agree with, or alternatively, putting forward the US set of principles or the US framework for a peace plan. The US is constantly hiding behind this mantra, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine, that we can't possibly tell the Ukrainians when to negotiate and what to negotiate. And yet, of course, we understand that the US is paying not only for the weapons, but the US is paying for the government to uh, be able to function. In fact, President Biden said the other day, that the US is paying for uh, the pensions of the Ukrainians, which sparked a lot of response uh, in the United States among people who were not getting pensions. Uh, and this issue about uh, what the war is costing, not only here in the United States, but what it's costing in Europe, has sparked tremendous protests like Marcy was referring to. We have to recognize that while the US public has not felt as much the blowback from these sanctions that the West has imposed on Russia, the Europeans certainly have. And we see the response in terms of demonstrations that link the issue of inflation, of the, uh, the increased costs of living in Europe, the increased costs of energy prices, especially uh, with the war in Ukraine. We saw early on back in the fall, uh, large demonstrations that were taking place in the Czech Repub Republic. We saw demonstrations taking place in Greece, uh, including recently when Biden made a, a visit there. Um, we've seen demonstrations, very large ones, in Germany that happened in this last weekend. And I think it's important to uh, focus a minute on what is happening in Germany, because uh, when Cy Hirsch put out his article about the US blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline, this has caused a lot of resentment among the public in Germany that sees US energy companies war profiteering from the uh, need of Europeans to scramble to get alternative sources of energy, where US companies have stepped in selling their energy at four to five times the price that the Europeans were paying before uh, for energy. You also have to understand that Europeans know war on their own soil more than people in the United States do, and are very afraid of this war uh, becoming a war uh, that is expanded into their own countries. And so there are uh, two, there's a politician from the left party, uh, Sarah Wagenknecht, uh, and together with a woman who is sort of the Gloria Steinem of Germany, her name is Alice 
Schwarzer, uh, put forward a manifesto calling for negotiations, they have received uh, over 700,000 signatures by Germans uh, supporting this. Tremendous support. Um, and we also see the polls uh, in Germany being uh, much more and more towards uh, this call for negotiations. Um, as there were protests happening last weekend in, um, in Berlin, huge ones, uh, estimates somewhere between on the low end 13,000, on the high end 50,000. There were also protests at the same time in the city of Rammstein, where the U.S. has a military base, uh, including calls there for the U.S. to leave, increasing anger among the population in Germany. The largest protests, well, there were big protests in the UK, but the largest protests have been in Italy, which has a long tradition of a peace movement and also has strong support from the labor unions uh, for their peace work. Uh, and they had protests uh, in cities all over Italy, tens of thousands of people coming out. And it was really sparked by a recent decision of the new prime minister in Italy to send weapons to Ukraine. So I put that in the context of how much activity there is going on in, in Europe and to understand uh, the context for their protests. We have a very different situation here in the United States. We have a, a population that did come out for large anti-war protests during the days of the Vietnam War when there was a draft, came out in the days uh, of the Iraq invasion to oppose that, but hasn't come out in large numbers for anything since then. And so it is uh, so difficult um, to get people out in the streets especially on this one when they really don't understand what's going on because of the narrative that is coming out from the mainstream media, as well as from both political parties, that this is a black and white situation, that there is no context in there for understanding Russia's moves, except that Putin is a madman. And this fiction that if we only send in more weapons, that we can achieve victory. Um, without even being able to tell us what victory means. Uh, we have no idea if victory means in the United States uh, political context, what it means for, by Zelensky, who is saying every inch of Ukraine, every inch of Donbass and Crimea, or if it means uh, something that we have heard uh, once or twice coming from administration officials, that victory would mean going back to uh, where uh, things were before the February invasion of last year, which is a very def different definition of victory. So um, uh, I want to just uh, end my part here before into, we go into questions by looking at the disconnect between um, what is possible on the ground, which is there is a stalemate, um, what we are being told, and the fact that there is a breakthrough despite this media and political uh, uh, narrative that the American people more and more 
are getting tired of the over $110 billion that we have put into war and are starting to feel like we are in a similar situations of the Afghanistan and Iraq wars, where we are told uh, victory is around the corner as long as we keep pouring in more money. And so we see that in the opinion polls that keep showing an increase in the number of Americans who are questioning this war. And the latest AP poll shows that only 48% of Americans are in favor of sending more weapons to Ukraine. It doesn't mean that 52% are opposed. It means that 52% either are opposed or don't know. But the fact that it is less than 50% who say, yes, we must send more weapons is quite extraordinary. Uh, uh, given not only the narrative, but extraordinary given how few people we have in Congress that are willing to take that position. In fact, it's a handful of extreme right members of the Republican Party that are willing to take that position. There is not one Democrat, even the only Democrat, Rokana, who has continued to say that negotiations are uh, important uh, does come out and say that we should keep supplying all the weapons that Ukraine asks for. So this tremendous disconnect is something that we have to um, recognize and work on. And so all of the work that we are doing in the peace in Ukraine, the work that I have been doing on this 50 plus city book tour has been to try to get Americans to understand just how dangerous the situation and how it is up to us really to create this groundswell of opposition that reaches up into our Congress that could then move to the White House to say, put forward your peace plan, push for a peace plan, be real, not with a 10 minute discussion, but real discussions about peace. And uh, that is the only way um, that we can influence this situation. We don't have the ability to influence Putin. I think the Chinese do. Uh, I think that there are other countries like India um, and other countries of the global south that can, but our job is to influence our own government. And I want to end just by quoting uh, from President Lula from Brazil, who met with, uh, who met with Biden um, just recently, and Biden pushing Lula, just as he is pushing other countries in the global south to actually get involved in this by sending weapons to Ukraine and showing their support for keeping this war going. And Lula said, what we need is not more weapons, we need interlocutors. And he said, interlocutors to tell the Russians what a terrible mistake they made by this invasion and tell the Ukrainians how important it is to go to the negotiating table. He said, we do not want to join this war. We want to end this war. And I think that should be our mantra as we go out in our communities and try to stir up this groundswell of support for peace talks, negotiations. We know more war is not the answer. Thank you so much.
ceasefire. Christina Aguilera. I'm Marcy Winograd for Code Pink Anti-War Radio. Here in the United States, our Peace in Ukraine Coalition, which Code Pink launched last year, has been working closely with the Answer Coalition and the People's Forum to organize ceasefire in Ukraine rallies in D.C., San Francisco, Los Angeles, Ann Arbor, Detroit, Chicago, and elsewhere. At Code Pink, we are inspired by the many thousands who are pouring into the streets of Germany and Italy to demand an end to this war that threatens World War III between the two most heavily armed nuclear nations, the United States and Russia. Next up, a conversation on Code Pink Congress in which we explored the anti-war movement in Europe calling for a ceasefire in Ukraine. Our guests, Lisa Clark, an Italian peace activist, a leader of the International Peace Bureau, and Reiner Braun, a German activist with the International Peace Bureau's Common Security Initiative. The initiative is based on the idea that nations and populations can only feel safe when their counterparts feel safe. Here we go, the first question. Many of us read Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Zemur Hirsch's Substack article, uh, which quoted a high-level unnamed source uh, in great detail, uh, saying that it was President Biden who planned, who, who brought together a, a group uh, with the help of his national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, to plan the sabotage of Nord Stream. And this was, the planning was, you know, put into motion even before the pipeline was sabotaged. And then it was Biden, the Biden administration and the CIA working in conjunction with Norway uh, to sabotage the pipeline. Okay, so... Some people are saying this was an act of war against Germany since the pipeline was transporting or was built to transport methane, natural gas from Russia to Germany. What has been the response, of, if any, in Germany or Italy to this sabotage? And are people aware of this report from Seymour Hirsch? And today, just one more footnote, the New York Times, a stenographer for the Pentagon and the White House uh, published an article, nary a word before this about the Seymour Hirsch article, but they published an article today saying that uh, to high level uh, unnamed sources say it wasn't the United States and it wasn't Russia that sabotaged the pipeline. It was an ad hoc group of Ukrainians that weren't necessarily connected to any military. It could have been, but not necessarily, and just some ad hoc Ukrainians. So what's going on in terms of the, the story about Nord Stream in Europe? Lisa, maybe you start. Um, all I could tell you is that it actually didn't make that much news in Italy. It was interesting because uh, the mainstream immediately started saying, well, Seymour Hirsch is, uh, is rather elderly maybe he's not quite lucid anymore or something like that. And, uh, you know, many of us uh, thought that he is the person that we followed and has revealed so many important truths throughout the world. Perhaps we should listen to him a bit more carefully. Um, but that didn't go across and the news actually petered out. It's, um, it, it's this, this latest thing you mentioned, Marcy, hasn't come across the Atlantic yet, or at least not, not to Italy. Thank you, Lisa. Reiner? Yeah, the, uh, the latest information you gave was the news in, in the German news last night. 
So it came over, but it was not the top news. It was one of the minimal interesting news. So the, you know, my answer is always because I don't have more information than you mentioned. My answer is who has the interest of stopping these pipelines? And then you can come easily to an answer that the interest is mainly on the US side, but also on the fracking side. And it is definitely a, a backup, a fight against German industry and the need for cheap gas, which is the background of the success of the German industry in the last 10 or 15 years. So it makes the situation for the German industry even much more difficult. And it was a fight since years between Germany, German government and the US government about these pipelines. So I think many arguments are supporting what Hirsch was saying. And for me, he's a great, great guy who had a great history for all of us who brought so many things to the public that I'm personally quite nearby that I believe that he's saying the truth. But let's see and wait. It is a story in Germany and it underlined our mistrust to what the United States and the United States government is doing in many parts of the society. Thank you, Reiner. Medea, question? Yeah, I'm going to throw out a bunch of questions and just answer what you feel like answering. And maybe you could uh, think about the other pieces and get back to us on them uh, when it's not uh, in the middle of the night for you. Um, so one is, uh, is the issue of the effect on your economies an issue that helps bring people out? Uh, does that help to get coalitions with the trade union movements? Uh, another is about the weapons issue. Do you openly oppose sending weapons? Uh, and um, how much is that a, an important issue in building your coalition? Uh, I think for many on this call, it's surprising that no to NATO expansion is not an issue uh, that's a central one for you. And maybe you could explain why not. And then um, is there, uh, are there issues that have come up in the United States of the difficult uh, alliances of maybe left and right coming together? And how does that play out? And Lisa, I'm especially interested in the government of um, Italy that is a right-wing government. Uh, does that help to get people out? Is it partly opposition to the government? And what has uh, Georgia Maloney's, uh, uh, um, her, her agreement to send weapons to Ukraine uh, done to her own coalition, where I don't think that is uh, necessarily the case? So obviously you can't answer all of these. Uh, pick and choose what you'd like to answer, and then we can continue the conversation another time because it's so fascinating. Uh, Lisa, you want to start? So yes. just to recap um, the, the questions, I'll, yeah. I'll just reiterate, uh, to what degree are trade unions, I think, involved in the coalition building? <clears throat> Do you because of the inflation the issue. Inflation issue, okay. How, how much does the inflation issue play into the role of building this coalition? Uh, are you explicit about opposing weapons? Uh, what's your feeling, position, observation about left-right coalitions building an anti-war movement in Europe? And then what about the NATO issue? Uh, I'll, yeah. say, I'll say a, 
let me say a few words about the trade unions because the trade unions are a pillar of our coalition and were long before the war as well. So the trade unions are involved not so much because of the inflation issue, but they're involved uh, because from the very beginning, they are part of our peace and disarmament movement. Um, uh, they're, they're very important in our peace movement. They help us with their organizing structure and we work on that and peace is in their in their statutes at least certainly in the left-wing in the most left-wing trade union and uh, they are an important member of our of our groups um, the inflation issue is not that important in getting people out on the street as i said the main point here is the humanitarian issue is the idea that we are we we need to be working for peace, not uh, because of its effects on people everywhere, and it's the old internationalist spirit is still with us here that the conditions of people in Ukraine or in the Russian jails are important to us as though they were our own conditions. And that's why we get people to march on the streets, the faith-based groups, the support in the Catholic Church is extremely important for us. And we're very much on along the same lines with them. To get to the opposing, um, opposed sending weapons, we are course opposed to sending weapons we don't make that a cutoff point though it's not uh, you you don't have to be opposed to sending weapons to uh, demand a ceasefire in negotiations what we say is that it's inadmissible to just keep on sending weapons without taking political and diplomatic steps to achieve a ceasefire and start negotiations and that is the position that brings us all together. Uh, left and right, no, we, we do not see any support to our peace movement from the right at all. Um, and that is make, makes life easier for us than it does for you, I think. Um, the right-wing Italian government, yes, there have been, they, they are in an embarrassing position. They were the ones who made all the um, financial deals with Putin's Russia all along until yesterday, as it were. And as for the decision to send the weapons and to support the war, that was started by the previous government. They, the Georgia Meloni's government is just continuing along the same lines with uh, the previous government. So I think I actually got most of it in there. Brilliant. So maybe I start with a difficult and critical one. First of all, the question of NATO. Uh, the NATO NATO is not a part of the appeals which are calling for ceasefire and negotiations. And the reason is very easy. A NATO NATO is a position of parts of the German peace movement. It is not a united position of the whole peace movement. We have very different opinions to NATO and to overcome NATO. So it is not the united position of the whole peace movement. And we have in the peace movement very controversial and intensive discussion how to deal with NATO. You know, I am personally absolutely against NATO and I'm engaged in the network no to war, no to NATO. But this is not the united position 
of the peace movement. The same is with the question of weapons to Ukraine. The huge majority of the German peace movement is against sending weapons to Ukraine. But minorities of the peace movement coming above all from the churches are believing that we have, should combine sending weapons and acting diplomatically. So they are calling for both. But this is a minority position. And in the appeal for the big demonstration in, uh, in Berlin and in Munich, we have the position of saying, we don't want to send more weapons to Ukraine. We are calling our government for taking diplomatic initiatives, which are calling for negotiations. And we are supporting the idea of ceasefire. That is the united position of all parts of the German peace movement. The inflation problem is not really a main point of the actions of the peace movement. The main reason is that the German, the German trade unions are really now not an active part of the German peace movement. That has something to do with the relation of the German trade unions to the German government. You know, the leading party in the German government is are the Social Democrats. And the leading party in many, many of the trade unions are also Social Democrats. This leads to the situation that the trade unions are quite quiet when we are discussing about actions against the war. And so these inflation and the social questions are not a key presence of the of the actions and the key question of the actions is that we don't want to have war because war is killing day to day, is destroying countries and all the humanitarian arguments are the background of the actions and activities of the German peace movement. Yes, we have in Germany an intensive discussion about left and right. The background of this discussion is that the right-wing party, the AFD, is, and I have to say in these very clear words, the only party in Germany which is against the Ukrainian war. The left party in Germany is divided in this question. Parts of the left party are supporting arms, the, the sending weapons to Ukraine, and they're even supporting uh, the war. And the only party which is in the parliament speaking clearly against the war is the AFD. This creates problems for some of our actions. And we are always trying to avoid to include the right wing in our actions and activities. Because in reality, the right wing party, by their position to the militarization of the country, by their positions to NATO and to the 2%, and by their position to the German army and the tradition of the German army as a fascist army, they are absolutely is they are absolutely militaristic party. So their tactical voices against the war are not our peace voices. But this creates by some actions above all in East Germany, where the right-wing party is very strong and are over 20-25% by the elections, create some problems. But we are, we are really not working with this right-wing extremist party, and we are saying this very clear in the beginning and during our activities, that fascist right-wing extremists are not welcome on our actions. But I will be very open to you. This creates, by some of the activities, some problems. 
Reiner Braun of Germany and Lisa Clark of Italy, longtime anti-war activists, planning an international peace conference June 10th and 11th in Vienna to call for a ceasefire and peace negotiations to end that war in Ukraine. Now we turn to Vijay Prashad, director of the Tri-Continental Institute for Social Research. He's written 40 books, including Washington's New Cold War, A Socialist Perspective. Vijay Prashad joined us on Code Pink Congress when he discussed the United Nations resolution, which passed overwhelmingly condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It left out the part about U.S. and NATO provocations, of course. He talks about why some in the global South refused to support that resolution and chose instead to abstain. The Prime Minister of Namibia, which is one of the countries that voted uh, to abstain on the resolution in the United Nations on the war in Ukraine, she said, she made the strongest statement, which surprised me actually. She said that the issue should be countries should resolve to fix the problem, not to ascertain blame. The issue isn't who's at fault. Let's fix the problem. And then she said, the bottom line is that money used to buy weapons would be better used to promote development in Ukraine, in Africa, in Asia, in the European Union itself, where many people are facing hardships. Now, what's interesting is that these leaders from Namibia, from Colombia, from Brazil, and other countries, are saying things completely different than what is being said in the Western capitals, which is why Emmanuel Macron on day one said the West is losing credibility in the global South. But because of the racist way in which the North Atlantic powers operate, they use the phrase international community to refer only to themselves. When Biden says, for instance, the international community believes, what he means is that the old settler colonial countries and the old imperial homelands believe. Every time they say the international community believes, I only hear them saying the old colonial countries and the settler colonial states believe. In other words, old Europe and then the settler colonial countries, United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and so on. But what's being said by the majority of the world's people is not paid attention to at all. Now, let me actually explain what I mean about the majority of the world's people, because this may not be clear to everybody. There are about 7 billion people in the world. There are about 1 billion people in these countries I have called the old colonial states and the settler colonial states. There's about a billion people in these parts of the world, in Europe, Australia, New Zealand, United States, Canada. One billion out of seven point some billion people in the planet. Even among that one billion, there is of course not unanimity of opinion. But somehow it's okay for Biden to walk astride the planet, as his predecessors did, Trump, Obama, and so on, and speak in the name of the whole planet. You see, until recently, 
after the collapse of the Soviet Union until recently, the US president basically assumed that what they said goes. What they say goes. What they say goes, everybody will line up behind them. And if they don't line up, they'll get whipped into line by their debt problems, the IMF, sanctions, and so on. But you see, the world has changed. You know, now there are countries like China, which is the largest trading partner of most of the world. And countries no longer are beholden to the United States. They are no longer prepared to be whipped into shape. And this is a surprise to Emmanuel Macron, who says we have lost our credibility. It's not just credibility. You've lost your leverage. You've lost your leverage because countries like Namibia don't only come now to the IMF. They go to the People's Bank of China. They go to the BRICS Bank. They go to other places to deal with their balance of payment shortfalls. You've lost your leverage, not your credibility. Macron used the word credibility. In fact, that's wrong. You've lost your leverage. People are not interested. And let me point this out a little stronger. You see, in countries like India, governed by the right wing, countries like South Africa, not really that much left any longer, country like Brazil now in the center left and so on, it doesn't matter what the political orientation of the government is. doesn't matter. These countries now have incubated a middle class that no longer wants to be pushed around. There is a kind of middle class anti-colonialism that has developed. If you go and look in India, for instance, the Indian foreign minister, S. Jay Shankar, has been very firm in his denunciation of the pressure on India by the United States and Europe to break ties with Russia. Very firm. He's been very critical. And all his videos go viral in India among a middle class that says, finally, we are standing up to the white man. It's very interesting, this kind of racial language used by middle class people, even of the right. So it's not a question of politics. That's what I'm trying to get at. There's the issue of leverage. Now countries have the option of going elsewhere for financing and so on. They are not able to be bullied by the United States. But secondly, a consciousness has arisen amongst the middle class, not among the left and so on, among the middle class who say it's about time we put our own interests first and not allow the United States to claim that its interests are universal interests. So that the Indian middle class says, if we want to buy fuel from Russia, we'll buy fuel from Russia. And what was interesting was what the South African foreign ministry said, South African foreign ministry said, hey, listen, this war in Ukraine, it's Europe's war. It's not Africa's war. We have our own wars. Over a million people died in and around the Great Lakes of the Congo, you know, the Great Lakes region, Eastern Congo, Rwanda and so on. Over the last 20 some years, a million people plus died. Where was the interest in that, they say? When it's our wars, you don't pay attention because of the international division of humanity. You're okay with the death of Africans and Asians and Latin Americans. When Europeans die, you want the whole world to be horrified. And that's 
that's the push of this drop of legitimacy what macross said because he is really leading this a little bit what macross said is there's really nothing that the west can do the west has to use a lighter touch and i was very interested my friends and i'm going to close here medea jodi i'm not going to take more than a minute more that's okay what was very interesting is at munich i'm emphasizing munich because it just happened it gives you a window of the immediate attitudes at munich the senior most official of the communist party of china came to address the crowd there and that was wang yi who was the former foreign minister of china he's the highest official in foreign policy circles wang yi was quite firm in munich saying china has always supported peace and he lectured the the blinken and company saying don't try to impose a war on us you spent half a million dollars shooting down a 12 dollar balloon and you want to use that as a causes belay against china's ludicrous the world is laughing at you you know the north illinois hobby society or whatever put up some balloons 12 dollars <laughs> pico balloons they bought from walmart and here you are with a half a million dollar missile shooting it down and blaming china and tried to build up war wang yi said don't do this okay let's grow up and then the chinese released a very interesting document which i commend to all of you to read um the, they released a document called the global security initiative concept paper peace is on the table friends it comes from colombia it comes from namibia it's coming from brazil it's also coming from the chinese now will the united states come to terms with the fact that it is merely another country out of 193 countries on the planet that the united states might need to learn to listen to other countries in the world and not always lecture them will biden learn that the world is neither the united states backyard nor its front yard as he said about latin america trying to be all liberal he said latin america is our front yard it's not your yard it's neither your front yard nor your backyard it's its own place in the world united states is merely a parochial country one more parochial country in a planet with 193 countries and i very much hope code pink will find a way to allow people to understand come to grips with the fact that this belief in american exceptionalism or the greatness of america calm down guys calm down try to fix your own country don't tell everybody else what to do in this thanks a lot author vijay prashad our guest on code pink congress which we host the first and third tuesdays of the month Check it out at codepink.org/codepinkcongress. Thank you for listening to Code Pink Anti-War Radio, presented by WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington D.C., KPFT 90.1 FM in Houston, and KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles. You can learn more about Code Pink, all of our campaigns, listen to our radio episodes at codepink.org. 
I'm Marcy Winograd. Together, let's organize and mobilize for peace. Since years before, been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil. 